Hey guys, thanks for listening to The Hustle. This week we talked to Robert White Johnson. He was the front man of a rock band in the early 80s called RPM. They put out two albums. The second album is called Phonogenic, and I discovered it last year, about a year and a half ago, and fell in love. It is this very intense, very produced, sort of poppy art rock. I really love it. I love it a lot. And you'll find out in this interview why. Because the people who helped him make that album are people who make other albums that I love a lot. The first album, which is self-titled, I hadn't heard at the time of this interview. I've since heard it. It's way more just straightforward rock, basically, sort of before, you know, hair metal bands like Rat and Motley Crue, and those guys were kind of infusing glam rock and power pop into hair metal. This was sort of pre that, more straightforward, scuzzy rock and roll. Robert has had an amazing career though. The band didn't last very long. It's another one of those situations like what comes up a lot on this podcast where you have a band who sounds just as good, if not better than other bands that are hugely popular making you millions of dollars. Why isn't this band doing the same thing? It's an ongoing mystery. But after that band, which he was frankly never really cut out to be in a band that wasn't ever really his goal, he sang some jingles, another guy who sang jingles that we all know and love. He was a songwriter and coincidentally wrote one of Celine Dion's biggest hits. That's like hitting the jackpot, if you ask me. That's like winning the lottery. Now he's a very sought after producer, has been and maintained a very fruitful, creative, supportive life all this time for what, 35, 40 years now. He was so nice. He called me from his home in Nashville. Robert White Johnson, thank you for talking to me today and coming on The Hustle. And I always kick these things off with a quick anecdote about how I discovered the person that I'm talking to. I actually, incidentally, interviewed somebody last week with, where I found the exact same way that, I'm, that I found you. So about a uh-huh. year ago, I was searching. This is why I love podcasts, because you can, I don't know if you listen to them very often, but you go in and you search for a topic or a person that interests you, and chances are there's something out there about them and then you can listen to it, and you can kind of learn about the thing that was of interest to you. So I was searching for a band called The Producers, an early sure. 80s band. That I re- Yeah, you remember them? remember them yeah. very well, yes. Yes, I, I like them a lot. I'm trying to get them on this podcast, actually. I was searching for them under podcasts just to see if there was an interview with them or something posted somewhere, and I found a podcast, I think it was called Rare 80s, And it wasn't even really, there were no interviews. Somebody had posted maybe 10 episodes, and each one was a different band where they played maybe three songs from that band. Uh And it was just obscure 80s music. And since I'm an 80s kid, I love that stuff. And RPM was one of them. Uh And the sound to me was so commercial, so, and this is a recurring theme when with people I talk to in this podcast, which is that it sounds as good as what's already out there making millions of dollars, selling millions of copies, but why is this band, like RPM, why are they the obscure ones when they sound just like somebody else who's in the mainstream selling millions? So I'm listening to RPM just thinking, this stuff is great. That was my introduction to RPM. I don't want to mean to dem- take over this conversation. You're but one other quick thing I got to say was that oh, I got to oh, give myself yeah. a little bit of okay, thank you. I got to uh-huh. give myself a little pat on the back because when doing research, 
before that, I was listening to you thinking, well, who would I tell people that this sounds like? And to me, it sounds like 80s version of Yes. 90125, Big Generator, Trevor Horn produced Yes. Then I find you, I find your webpage, and it turns out I'm about as close to that as I could have gotten, right? Exactly. <laughs> so tell me the now, t okay, so let's go to you. Was RPM your first thing? And if so, tell me how it started. My first thing, you mean as far as a band? Yeah, like your first commercial break, you know? First record um, contract, that kind of a thing. Well, as far as a major major record deal, yes. I grew up in, in, uh, in the Midwest. I grew up in Illinois. Um, started my first band in fifth grade. And, you know, really, I've been in bands my whole life. Traveled in the mid to late 70s you know, throughout the Midwest and South, ended up opening, uh, this, was a, this was a band uh, that I grew up with, guys I grew up with back in Moline, uh, Illinois area. Uh -huh. And we were schoolmates, bandmates, friends, and that sort of thing, did that for like three years, and happened to open for a, a country artist in my hometown, who I didn't really, I wasn't even that, that awfully familiar with, and the next thing I know, they asked me back on their, their tour bus to, to meet them on the tour bus, and they wanted to develop me as a pop or rock artist in Nashville, which totally spun my head around because I never uh -huh. envisioned coming to Nashville. I always thought I'd end up in uh, L.A. Or, or New York or something. And But I came down here and I fell in love with the place, uh, immediately introduced to incredible uh, songwriters and producers. And, and Dottie and her husband, who was her drummer also at the time, Byron, uh, took me under their wing. And we picked out songs, uh, picked out the band, the players, the studio, the whole thing. Unfortunately, not unfortunately, but we, my, my wife and I had moved down here Made made the critical move, left the band, which is a, which was a huge deal. Anyway, I didn't want to make it sound like I was ungrateful leaving the band. The band, mm -hmm. you know, three years, people were were just having a good time, uh, doing a happy hour and, and hitting the the sauna and stuff, and, and didn't want to really write that much anymore or work at it. So it was time. And uh, when I got down here, Dottie and her husband had a horrible divorce soon after we arrived, rather, and so I, I found myself like, now what am I going to do? You know, so yeah. I, I came here for this purpose. Ended up meeting some people that knew Ronnie Millsap. They actually needed an introduction, <clears throat> and Millsap signed me as a, as a staff writer. Actually, his, his, uh, one of his first staff writers. Not long after that, I, I ended up uh, by chance meeting this very talented 17-year-old kid walking past his apartment one day. I heard this crazy clavinet coming out of out of the hallway, and on the bottom floor of his apartment. And I'm going like, who in the world is this? So I, I stood there. He didn't know I was there. And this guy is sitting there in his gym shorts, uh, at a clavinet, no shirt on, with a back with a box of Captain Crunch, sitting on top of his keyboard. Yeah. And uh, it's like freaking me out. I'm going like, who uh -huh. is this guy? So he he stops, and he looks up and he sees me, and I introduce myself. Anyway, his name is Jimmy Lee Slows. Well, he came to town to play bass for a country artist hadn't finished high school, that sort of thing, incredibly talented. And, and I said, well, I've got this idea. I've, I've got a connection with Millsaps people. Maybe you might want to help me. Don't tempt me with your eyes. I fill my heart with lies. If you don't really want me to. And say, say what's on your Oh, 
good. And so right then and there, we after like you know meeting each other for a few minutes, we end up finishing up the song. Ends up Millsap cuts it. Then the next thing, yeah, next thing you know, Nigel Olson cuts it. Uh, along with another song that Jimmy and I wrote, Nigel was recording at Web 4 Studios down in Atlanta for Bang Records at the time. Eileen Burns was the label head. And so all of a sudden we're getting these these cuts, major major covers and stuff, and Jimmy and I just really hit it off. You know, <laughs> it kind of developed into this thing. And then uh, wow. we were at Millsaps, and Brent Mayer, who is a good friend of Millsaps, used to hang out there, and he heard some of the stuff we were doing. He's like, I love these guys. He was kind of hearing us like another Hall & Oates. Sort of oh, so we started writing songs. Brent was producing some sides with us. Brent had engineered records. He mixed, you know, Please Come to Boston, Olivia Newton John, just just a mm-hmm. bunch of people. He had really great pop rock sensibilities. Yeah, and he was also producing Dottie West and Kenny Rogers and people like that at the time, and and stuff. So he started developing us, and we we cut some sides, and people liked what they heard, but they said we just need to feel like it needs some edge. And then at the publishing company, I was working for one day on Music Row in, in Nashville, ATV. I'm in there cutting some demos, and I see this long-haired guy mm-hmm. sitting at, at the console in the control room. And I'm going, like, who is this guy? You know, it's like, right. um, and it turned out to be Mark Gendel, who, had, in no joke, had just arrived in town from the Toronto area with his brother. That was one of the first places they stopped, and, and they allowed to come upstairs to see what was going on. Well, he was a huge Jimmy Page fanatic, so we hit it off. We started writing songs, consequently, and then uh, Jimmy, you know, the, the three of us, had the synergy going on, and the drummer that we hired for our, our demos all the time was Tommy Wells, and lo and behold, this, this whole thing started. Brent was producing us at the time. I was an amazing mentor, just a great guy, extremely talented, and, and really channeled us in, in really good ways. But in the first record, we cut a number of sides, and Brent started pitching it to, to different labels. And uh, we had five labels that, that wanted us. We had never played a gig together in our lives. <laughs> Mind you, we were a studio band. We were writing. And so one by one, Brent brought in heads of record labels from Bearsville Records, uh-huh. uh, from their upstate New York at the time, you know, and they had Todd yeah. Rundgren, and, and yep. I mean, they got our attention. Also, uh, Capitol Records, Chrysalis Records, and then Don Grierson head of honor for EMI. Well, Brent had produced and delivered them a number one record, Bluer Than Blue, Michael Johnson had done that song. Yeah, sure. After you go, I can catch up on my reading. After you go, I have a lot more time for sleeping. When you're gone, looks like things are gonna be a lot easier. Life will be a breeze, you know. I really should be glad, but I'm blue than blue, sadder than sad. You're the only light this empty room has ever had. Life relationship with them already and we fell in love with Don. Don was from Australia, a great song guy and we just we just and he wanted he felt we were ready to, to do a record. Let's let's go for it, chaps. And 
Yeah. So he was he was speaking our our language. Chrysalis wanted to sign us really bad, but they wanted us to uh, tour for a year or two before we went in, mm. in the studio. Mm. And of course, we were chomping at the bit. And then Brandon already had the relationship with with Don, so we made a record. Uh, I'm not sure how much you want me to to tell about. Oh, no, this all, is all great. Okay. So here was a thing, John. We didn't have a band name settled yet. We we we, we thought we had a band name. Okay. And, and we had uh, chosen Toys T O Y Z. Okay. Well, uh-huh. our our attorneys had done a a search on it and said, well, there's this obscure band in Long Island that has used that, but they haven't used it for years. And so we need to before we go that down that road, we need to really double check. See uh, if there's going to be any possible pushback, you know. Uh-huh. Well, so so Brent kind of acted as our liaison. He was kind of acting as our manager at the time too, and he starts making calls for us and ends up finally talking to <clears throat> this guy named Grammatico. And this guy said, "Yeah, well, I've, I've had that band. You know, we don't really play that much anymore, but we might. Uh-huh. But you might be familiar with my my brother." And Brent goes, "Who's that?" He says, "Lou Graham." Oh, uh, no way! Fight. Yeah, what? So, we're going like, okay, well, we're not going to use that name because yeah. uh, obviously, you know, Lou, yeah. you know, and his connections and that sort of thing, he might tell his brother. Hey. Right. So right. here we were. We had a we had a, a record deal. We literally had the record wow. almost done, and we still don't have a name. And I, I'm sitting there with Brent in, in, the, in his office uh, outside uh, off, from, off from the studio, uh-huh. and we're just we're going out of our minds. You know, it's like we're now we're completely obsessed with trying to come up with a name, and I – I said, well, you know, I've got a name, but I said I've been reluctant to really kind of share it because I'm thinking, like, you know, it's probably already taken or used, whatever like that. He uh-huh. said, what is it? I said, RPM. And he uh-huh. goes, oh, that's just, that's probably too obvious, but what do we got to lose? <laughs> and, you know, right. we did a search on it, and it was available. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah, yeah you would have thought that that would have yeah. been taken. Right. Interesting. Right. Wow. So, anyway. So, here we, you guys are, are a collection of guys, kind of a, you're not all buddies who grew up together with a dream. No. You're just a bunch of guys who sort of stumbled into one another. You right. are not playing live. You don't have a name. You just collaborate, and whatever you're making, it's got some magic to it, and labels right. want to put it out there, and you're all still getting to know each other. I mean, you just, exactly. you've just been exactly. writing country songs, right. which sound nothing like RPM. Right. That must have been making your head explode. Totally. So, and and at the time we didn't tell anybody that we were from Nashville because at that time it was really taboo. It was just like yeah, it's uh, not the music and, town that it is now. And the label even said, hey, you know, you know, we're gonna play that down and and that sort of thing. So a lot of people really thought we were from Los Angeles or. You know, I assumed you were British. Yeah, or you know, just based and, on the sound of phonogenic, I assumed you were British. Right. Well, I, that's that's the the second record. I'll I'll definitely segue into that. But so anyway, we we do this record. EMI's very excited about it. We've gone out there to master the record, working with Ken Perry, who'd master all the Beatles records and, you know, Beach Boys and all this stuff and uh, at the Capitol building. And the first song we had released as a single for say the rock radio was A Legend Never Dies. You know we could last forever Together till the end of time Everlasting love is like Never 
is, well, anyway, we get a call from EMI not long after the record's released, maybe a few weeks, and they said KLOL Radio, which is the, the largest rock station in Houston, one of the largest in the mm. country, wants RPM to headline their rock fest no at the Astrodome Complex. <laughs> and we had never played a gig before oh, together, man. other than wow. auditioning for record labels. Sure, now, sure. we had played in various bands over the years since we were kids, but, but uh-huh. not as a, as a not unit. Not together as a unit, yeah. So anyway, God blessing, you know, Brent went down with us to Houston to run sound for us and be our pseudo-manager. We'd had a manager and fired a manager during this time. Okay. And, and Brent was, he was, he's our mentor. He was our guy and uh, be forever grateful to him. And so we went down there, mind you, this is the first gig we ever played, headlining. I mean, it was, it was you know, and we come out and thought, well, people. you know, yeah. well, back up just a minute. So we fly into town, the limo picks us up, turns on the radio, and it's our song on the radio. No! Yes! Yeah. Yes! Like, so, so, so we're living the dream. It's just like yes. surreal. You know? <laughs> so it's like number one number one in rotation at KLL and many other major rock stations in the country. And so we played a gig that night, and we decided to open with that song. Mm-hmm. And it starts out with this pretty heavy guitar riff. Right. And... Mark starts playing the riff, and 20,000 people go berserk. No way. And it was so loud that we couldn't hear ourselves think. We were having trouble oh, man. really getting a grasp on our monitors as far as just like hearing what we were doing. Because usually, in, you know, uh, in a live situation, you get the first couple songs to give the sound people the sure. time to kind of find their way. And luckily, you know, Brent was manning the board, but even it was just overwhelming just because of the, the crowd wow. reaction. Yeah. Hey, long story short, we did four encores. We had to replay our first song again. We ran out of songs, of course. <laughs> yeah. But but as fate would have it, Don Grierson wasn't able to be there. Don had sent some other low-level guy from EMI from L.A. Don, at the time, was in a relationship with Shane Easton, and they were in the oh. West Indies. He was actually catching a lot of flack at the time because we were on the same label as Jay Giles, uh-huh. Kim Carnes, David Bowie, and everybody were, were freaking out, going like, wait a minute, you know, the head of A&R is sleeping with, you know, uh, yeah. an artist. You know, yeah. Sheena was yeah. on EMI. Anyway, uh, loved Don to death, but he wasn't there. He didn't see what happened. So consequently, again, just as fate would have it, uh-huh. Don, not long after that, uh, Don was forced to move to Capitol because of his relationship with Sheena. We lost our guy. Had Don been there for that gig and saw what had sure. happened? No doubt in my mind that him and Jim Mazza, who was the president of the label at that time, would have just said, okay, yeah. let's go all out, you know? Yeah, these guys and, can play in front of 20,000 people and make them go nuts. We got something here. Yeah. But without I mean, him being there, there's no witness. There's no witness to go back to the label to fight for you, right? Right, exactly. Oh, yeah. yeah. heartbreaking. The guys are all... Just phenomenal players, obviously. It was very exciting. But, you know, we licked our wounds and rolled up our sleeves. In the meantime, we had gotten really, really involved in the recording process. And so we had a band house. So we started coming up with the next batch of songs. And just kind of creatively, our first record was probably more in keeping with, like, Foreigner or Journey. Yeah, that's what I can tell. You know, and then we started hearing a lot of really great bands coming out of England at the time. They really started having impact on us. So in the meantime, we signed with a manager. 
Jerry Schilling. Jerry was one of the Memphis Mafia. Elvis yeah, had right. befriended him at 14 years old. At the time, Jerry was co-managing the Beach Boys, so he was plugged in, and that eventually led to me writing with Carl Wilson and, and, and working yeah, I was on the Beach Boys record. Okay, that's the connection. Do you yeah. mind, and, can I interrupt you for one second and ask you sure. a couple questions real quick about that first album? Absolutely. Do you know how many copies of your first album sold? No. No, I no, don't. I, okay. You know, it's a good question. I, I know that we didn't recoup, obviously. Yeah, um, I was going to say, it wasn't enough for you to make any royalties on. Right, right. Okay. Although, what what is interesting is that we had four other major artists cover songs from that record. Really? Then yes. or later or? Over the next few years. Really? Tigers of Pantang, British band, recorded a song of ours from their record called Rendezvous, which is... To this day, I think still a, they they had a big hit with it over overseas, and it was on the greatest hits album. Blackfoot, Ricky Medlock recorded sure. one of our songs, and then Johnny Van Zandt, mm-hmm. which is how I got connected with Johnny and ended up producing yeah. him and working with Scott. You have a pretty deep history with those guys that I want to he touch record, on a little bit. Okay. Right. He, re- he recorded our song 2 Plus 2, and Rodney Mills, who'd done all the 38 stuff, had produced that uh, on Johnny. Mark Farner, believe it or not. Oh, really? Recorded, oh, yeah, from Grand Funk. Yeah, he recorded a song called You from our first record. He even called me up at the time because it was in the stratosphere. It was one of those songs where the guitar player and I were arguing from the get-go. He loved the open chords. It's got to be, you know, whatever, I don't know, it was E or whatever. And I'm going yeah. like, I'm not going to be able to sing this live night after night. It's uh-huh. so high. But Mark Farner was working on a Christian project. And oh, we didn't write that wow. song as a, as a Christian song, but but it could be taken that way. But he asked me, he said that at the end of the conversation, he goes, he's like, I asked you one thing, he says, did you VSO machine down a little bit to hit those really high notes, full voice? I went like, yeah, he goes, thank uh-huh. God. <laughs> <laughs> Good. You know? Yeah, he could relate. Mm-hmm. You wrote those songs, right? So you're yes, making we... a, a focus of this podcast is the money aspect of, yes. you know, how, again, how artists pay their bills when they aren't gigantic millionaires. So you wrote those songs. They're being recorded by other acts that are arguably bigger than yours and getting some traction. Are you, I assume you're making some money off of that. Is it good enough money that you can kind of sustain yourself for a while? Do you still continue to make any money off of that, any mechanical royalties? Yeah, and back then it was kind of sort of, I was, I got signed to, after Millsap, I left there and went to ATV, uh, ATV owned all the Beatles copyrights before uh, Michael Jackson bought it. Yeah, yeah. And and ATV was an international company, and so 
I had a, a writing deal with them. I was the only one in the band that had a writer's deal because Jimmy, our bass player, and, and Tommy, our drummer, were also great session players in demand. And so okay. when we weren't you know, doing stuff with the band, they were playing sessions uh, quite yeah. often during the week. I would write songs, so I was getting cuts with, with other artists and stuff at, at, at the time. But, but that, that publishing draw, you know, helped, you know, get me yeah. through it. And also uh, there was some, some BMI money, uh, performance money, as, as the other artists covered those songs, mechanicals and sure. and radio airplay money would, would, uh, okay. would, would sustain the publishing deal, you know? Okay. When you got signed on with Millsap, was that sort of the beginning of you making a living as a musician? Yes. Or Okay, you had a regular job, I'm guessing, and then you got that gig, and that changed right. everything, and you've been right. making your living off of music or production ever since, I'm guessing, right? Absolutely, yes. Okay, uh-huh. great. Wow, so, very cool. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's all I've done my whole life, although I, I sold insurance with my brothers way a long, long time ago for a couple of years before okay. I came to my senses again. But otherwise, I mean, I, even then when I was selling insurance, I... I was still a weekend warrior. I mean, I, I still had a band, yeah. and we were still playing yeah. every weekend. Okay, okay. All right, great. And one last question about the first album. Did A Legend Never Dies, did that chart, did that make the yes. top 100 or anything like that? It was on the rock charts, and I've okay. got that somewhere stashed away. It was, you know, an R&R radio records. They were kind of like the Bible at that time as far as sure. rock radio. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, that, that charted, and like I said, it was number one or top five in, in a number of markets. We went down and, and performed at the Astrodome Complex. We also performed, uh, at that time, there was a, a string of clubs in America known as Agora Rock Clubs. Okay. And and they were like the, the, the house of blues today. They had amazing mm-hmm. sound systems and stuff. So we played a couple of those in Texas. We could have probably played for a month. In Texas, I mean Texas, wow. you know it rocks. Loves you. Man. I mean, yeah, you know, yeah. wow. And, uh, okay, all yeah. right. Well, good. Okay, so now going back to the beginning of the second album, Phonogenic. This is the one I love. So tell right. me, you're being influenced by what you're hearing overseas in the UK, mm-hmm. and it kind of changes the focus. Right. Get back up. We got the band house. We're there every day, knocking it out. You know. In the meantime, also, like I said, we we had. Uh, uh, hired a, a new manager, Jerry Schilling. Jerry came in. We auditioned for him. He loved what he heard. We were fanatical as far as songs. I, I mean, if there's any piece of advice I, I, I give young artists that I'm producing or I could give artists out there trying to do their own thing, it's like there's only one first impression. We always did our homework. Yeah. We got started out the right way because of people like Brent Mayer because he understood a great song. And Good. and he would he would we have these great ideas and these melodies and whatever like that but but Brent would would bust our chops and go like you know no wait that middle eight isn't quite there or you know uh, it's just keep challenging yourself so yeah we continued that <clears throat> minus Brent on on the next record because creatively we were kind of going a little bit different direction at that point we were pretty obsessed with wanting to have more control of the whole recording process and everything no disrespect to Brent but we were just kind of headed sure. we we were kind of you know, going in a different direction. So Jerry Schilling's on board, and Jerry said, look, I've got a great relationship with Warner Brothers and Burbank. They're a, they're a great record label. They're, they look at uh-huh. things long term. You guys let me know when you're ready, and I'll bring Warner Brothers in, you know. And at the time, our attorney was Peter Paterno, and that's actually how I got connected with, we got connected with Jerry Schilling because mm. Peter Paterno was also Jerry Schilling's attorney, and Peter was playing our 
our new work tape of new songs, okay. and Jerry stopped in his office and like, who the heck is that? Okay. You know, that's, yeah. that's really good. And so that's how we got together. Jerry, or, or Peter, was also the attorney for the Jackson family. He mm. later went on to, to be the head of Hollywood Records. Mm. He was just a, a great attorney. I mean, he was way more than a attorney. I could tell he, he wanted to be more of a manager, really, at the end of the day. Yeah. And, okay. and, he, and he was a wise. But anyway, so Jerry brings in the hierarchy of Warner Brothers, and we do a showcase at SIR downtown Nashville just for these three guys. You know, huh. so we had a little sound yeah. stage there. Bring, you know, it was Felix Chamberlain, Michael Austin, who was the son of Mo Austin, who was the chairman of Warner's, and Tom Wallach, uh-huh. who later, I think Tom, Tom, I think is, is, I don't know if he's still the head of Capital or, or whatever. Right. I mean, he's he's up in the upper, upper echelon. But anyway, Big these time. three guys yeah. came, and we played a half a dozen songs, and they were like blown away, and and uh-huh. they were like, you guys have, have got the goods, and you know, we want to sign you. You know, so yeah. they signed us to a multi-record deal. Wow! Before they, can left. I ask you kind of a nerdy question about that? No, go for it. This is something I've always wondered. When you're doing those little gigs like that on a sound uh-huh. stage for three people, do you perform? Do you go all out? You know what I'm yes. saying? Yes. Because it's a, you know you're it's the strangest thing especially. in the world. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine because you know it's fun to go back and watch music videos from the '80s. But if you think about what they're seeing. They're standing there in a room full of people, lip syncing, probably looking and feeling sort of foolish. Right. At least I would, and I'm not, that's why I'm not the front man of a rock group, I guess. But here's you and your band performing in front of three people, and you've right. got to give them a sense of what you're all about. And it goes, it, it's an image-conscious era, so it's beyond just how good the songs are. It's, yes. can we make music videos with this guy? Is he going to be in the teen magazines or women going to want to be with him and you know are are people going to want to see him live you've got to give them a sense of that in this room with just the three of them that would really mess with me i would be so self-conscious but do you feel any of that or are you just like i'm here to rock and i'll do whatever i have to do i mean it is really the hardest gig in the world you know we we even told ourselves look at if we get past this Everything else yeah. is a piece of cake, right? Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, you know, think of it. You know, you, you're just—it's like you're—you feel like you're naked, in, in yeah. a sense. And and these guys, not only that, but it's not like playing for an audience that that may love you. These right. guys control your potential future. You know? Yeah, yeah. It, it's like it you was know, probably like, easier performing in front of those twenty thousand people in Houston, maybe yes. even than those three people in that little room. Yeah, yeah and you, anyway, you kind of feel like. Yeah. Like you're some some uh, little gladiator out there, with, yeah. and with, with you know, and maybe are you gonna get the thumbs up or the thumbs down? You know? <laughs> yes. Okay, but it obviously went well. They're blown away yeah. by your success. Yeah, and we, okay, I mean, we dressed the part. We looked the part. We, sure. we, we purposely got the big room at SIR downtown because we could move. We could kind of create. We we brought in lights. We had rehearsed. You know, we done we done a okay. sound check. We looked the part. You know, we may have even done some makeup. We were like obsessive with this with is the, a full the, performance, yeah. the details, right? They uh, were obviously taken by that. But before they left, they said we're going to make this deal happen. We're we're looking at a, at a multi-record deal, and then they give us a advanced copy of nine hundred one two five by Yes.
all-time favorite albums. This is something that that is ready, you know, that uh, we're ready to come out, and uh, we're going to have a little advanced listen. Well, anyway, so it was a cassette. We, of course, listened to it and went crazy. Yeah. And we we went back to Warner Brothers and said, we want to work with Trevor Horn's right-hand guy. He's my all-time favorite producer, by the way, Trevor Horn. Everything he does is just ear candy. The most beautiful, delicious ear candy there is. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, go ahead. They said, okay, but look, if we can't get him, we have to have some options. So, okay, we had two choices. The guy that produced The Fix, the band, British band, The Fix. Rupert Hunt. Oh, uh, Gus Dudgeon? No, his name is Rupert Hine. He, Rupert he did, Hine, that's the, I get them mixed up. Yes, Rupert yes. Hine. And Ru- Rupert had done a solo record called The Wildest Wish to Fly. And yeah. if you ever get a chance, check it out. Long story short, we, we want to record with Rupert Hine or his, his people at the farmyard mm-hmm. in England or Trevor Horn's guy at SARM Studios. And so met with both of them and fell in love with Gary Langan, who's Trevor Horn's right-hand guy. Gary mixed... 90125, he he mixed uh, the Buggles records, uh, the band The Buggles that, that Trevor was yep. involved with. He mixed oh, yeah. ABC. He mixed yes. Frankie Goes to Hollywood. I know. I mean, all this, this stuff. This is my sweet spot. This is all my favorite stuff right there. Yeah. And Warner Brothers goes, sure, why not? As a matter yeah. of fact, our inner guy that we worked with for the most part during that time frame was Felix Chamberlain. And Felix couldn't wait to go over to England. I mean, he was like, he was just like uh-huh. we were. He he was he was just excited about about working over there as we were so he was our champion. We booked the studio. We spent almost six months in in London at at, at Sarm Studios. It was a remarkable experience. The first day we arrived, we went to the studio and Gary was doing a remix of Leave It by by Yes. One down, one to go to another town, one more show. Downtown to give away. She never came back No phone to take your place Do you know what I mean? We have the same intrigue As we caught a case Surreal. I'm sitting here talking with uh, Chris Squire and John Anderson, and I'm asking John how he did the background vocals on Owner of a Lonely Heart and stuff. They were just incredibly pleasant guys. Wow. It was crazy, amazing. I mean, like Gary, Gary was like, we would come in with ideas, and he was like the mad scientist. He was like, it's wrong, chaps. If we, what if we? What if we did this? We could even take it further, you know. I mean, it was like, uh-huh, uh-huh. and in retrospect, probably in ways we we maybe, you know, maybe he should have like reined us in a little more, <laughs> uh-huh, you know. Uh-huh. But right. you know, I mean, it was a, and, and of course the Fairlight was just being, uh-huh. you know, uh, yes, it used it extensively on nine one two five. JJ, who was actually programming all that stuff for, for Yes, was working with us. And uh, he was also, Gary was also part of the band Art of Noise. I don't know if you ever yeah. know those guys. Sure, yeah, it was Gary, yeah. 
it, it was Gary originally, uh, JJ, and Ann Dudley before Trevor got involved. Ann Dudley, but, she's amazing too. Yes. And mm-hmm. so it was, I, I can't begin to tell you how, because it, it was oh, this man. whole new resurgence of, of yeah. British bands and stuff at that time. Trevor was doing uh, uh, Foreigner, uh, uh, producing uh-huh. Foreigner during this process, uh, Agent Provocateur. Yeah. And they had they had been at the Hit Factory in New York. Trevor hated it over there, brought them back to his studio at SARM. And so, I mean, you know, here we are hanging out with wow. with the S and, and Foreigner. Yeah. <clears throat> You're in the middle the of, like, some of the most perfect pop music of that era and oh. and, and creativity and, you know, technical breakthroughs and stuff. I mean, you're talking about, well, Foreigner for one, but you mentioned ABC's Lexicon of Love yes. and Frankie Goes to Hollywood and that Yes album. There's a Grace Jones album around that time, Slave to the uh-huh. Rhythm, that Trevor does eventually. Right. I'm nerding out specifically because these are, that is like my probably all-time favorite period of music. ABC yes. and Yes, those are like in my top ten favorite albums of all time. Yeah. Well, you know, and you're in, the, you're in the center of it all. You're right there. Yeah, I, I mean, we were pinching ourselves, man. It was just like surreal. Yeah. Trevor told us that he spent a hundred grand just on owner of Lonely Heart. Oh, you know, I'm not that, that's nineteen eighty three. Yeah. Right? I mean that that's Gosh. like what I don't know, it'll be a half a million today, probably something. Yeah, like yeah. But you know, it was like the guy just he had a vision, and he was very, very humble, very gracious to us. But he was, I, I was surprised as to how. Sure. Good, quiet and laid back he was. He was very, very, uh, very subtle, you know. Just oh, that's very, great. You know, uh, very, yeah. very nice man. But then the album comes out and it's not. They don't get behind it. Oh yeah. So anyway, get this. So <laughs> we put everything in this record. We had a flat and uh, made a veil not far from the studio. Two to rooms, so we'd save money in rooms, so we put more money in the studio, more and more studio uh-huh. time, and. And everything was just like, you know, just being able to put as much into the record as we possibly could. Yeah, and a lot of sacrifice. I mean, you know, I was married. My wife mm-hmm. came over one time, but otherwise we're away from family for over five months. Yeah. And months. So it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. But we, we get back. So now we start talking releases. Mm-hmm. Now, this is early 1984. So we finished up the record in, uh, like, January, February of 84. And uh, we going crazy with the artwork. Basically, we're, we're all about that. We, we, we chose I the love the album and, cover. Thank you. We, we're, I was yeah. sitting here with a guitar player, Mark, one night. You know, TV, uh, especially in Britain at that time, was pretty hilarious. You know, it's like, uh-huh. uh, now we will make bread. And, and, uh-huh. and, and you can have rye bread or, or wheat bread. Or, you know, it, it's like, really? You know, yeah. our, our, our album cover is based on the British TV test pattern. Mm-hmm. And then we just kind of like modified it by putting this uh, this this cut glass and in a way to kind of make it our own sort of thing. And uh-huh. we thought it really worked with the whole play on words, the phonogenic rather than photogenic, you know, sort yep. of thing. Yep. We felt really strongly about about obviously the record. Uh, the feedback was phenomenal from people. You know, just the sound of it. Uh, uh, you know, some of the songs were pretty out there, but then there was like uh, Savoir Fair, which was very commercial.
appeared on Solid Gold yeah. during the United States TV, the TV program. I read that. I, I couldn't find the clip on Facebook or on YouTube, unfortunately. I wish that I uh, could have. Yeah. It would have been fun. I've got actually uh, that. And then we did a video on the song Man Overboard, and that was going to be the first single. Mark Resico, we chose him as the director. Well, Mark was huge at that time because he had that Quiet Riot, Come Feel the Noise track. Uh-huh. <laughs> that video that was like video of the year. I mean, it was just like crazy. Yeah. So we spent, the label, spent close to a hundred grand on this, this concept video. Oh, wow. And and I, I love Mark. He's a great guy and, and everything else. But at the end of the day, if you watch yeah. our video, it's incredibly avant-garde. But people really? go like, what? What does it mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And after spending oh. almost a hundred thousand bucks, you know that that's scary. Oh, I mean, you yeah. know, uh, I think money money goes fast in the studio. Video is, is insane. Yeah, and, yeah. So, that. But so so here we you know we we shot a video <clears throat> in L.A. We're on solid gold hits. Got a record coming out. We're thinking like, man, this is this is looking good. Well, the record label we were having trouble finding a release slot. For, for the album. Hmm. We told our manager, Jerry, at the time, um, we don't care if we got to wait six months. You know, we'll, we'll wait. Yeah. We spent six months in the studio. We spent over a year writing this record, and so we got a year and a half into it. We don't care, you know, but, but you know, we got these, we got this three-week window in, uh, you know, like springtime, whatever like that, uh-huh. right before summer, you know, and uh-huh. and we're going like, oh, I don't know, we just don't feel good about it, and then so yeah. he kept pressing us, and we kept rejecting it. He kept pressing us, and we started getting pressure from the label and and stuff. And you know, it was one of those moments where we finally begrudgingly said yes. Oh and man! Knew knew at the time we yeah. were making a mistake, but that we we were our um, our common sense and our gut was being overridden by sure. uh, our brain. I guess at the time. Well, you wanted it out there, too. I mean, I imagine yeah. that's got to be conflicting, right? We've worked on something yes. we know is excellent. Yeah. We can either sit on it for another six months until it's right, or we can get it out there and just hope that the world thinks what we think about it. Right. Oh. So they went with Man Overboard as the first single, which we I wasn't even really sure if that was like the best first single. But anyway, uh, they, they went with that. Why am I dreaming if I'm Someone please explain One look at her and I felt something break Now there's Turns out, it was the greatest quarter 
in Warner Brothers Records history. You want to know what our competition was? I think I know because I read it on your website. Purple Rain. 1984 by Van Halen. Yep. Purple Rain, Eliminator, ZZ Top. Yeah. And I think it was like a Rod Stewart and a Elton John record that would go through the system at that same time. And it's like, well, what are you going to do? Are you going to... You get you get the number one movie in in the world, Purple Rain. Yeah. You got the biggest record Van Halen ever had with Jump, right? Yeah. In 1984, yeah. and they they couldn't sell records fast enough. So why yeah. would they waste their time with this new band called RPM? Right. That, that was going to be a chore, you know. Oh man. So well, now if you um, had waited the six months, do you think your fate would have been much different? Would those albums have sort of passed their prime, and so more focus could be given to you? Or were you just going to be swept up in this tidal wave no matter when you came you out? You know, I, that was that probably would have been the case. It probably would have been somebody else. Here's the other thing, too. Obviously, people are human. They have a short attention span. And so to try to get people re-motivated six yeah. months later yeah. on, on product that they've been familiar with when they've got yeah. maybe uh, uh, new, new records coming out by other new artists and, and established artists, it was devastating, you know? Yeah. Oh man! And it was like a year and a half of of our life. We just felt uh, like, yeah, you know, what happened? You know, yeah. Oh, so sad. And that's such. I mean, that album deserves to be heard. If you're anyone like me who grew up around that time, has a predilection toward music of that same era, phonogenic especially. I can't speak to the first album because all I know is the legend song. I haven't heard the rest of it. It does seem a little harder edged. You can't go wrong with phonogenic. I mean, it, it deserves to be up there with everything else that's praised and still considered classic from that era. I mean, that's I my personal opinion. Well, it's true. That's, mm-hmm. It's amazing stuff. And it, it, like I said earlier, it's so frustrating when you when you fall in love with this album that it's like, well, I'm hearing stuff that's just as good. I mean, 90125 sold millions of copies. It's mm-hmm. It's the same team. And right. not to say that you're a derivative of that by any means, but they are applying that same talent and ability to you right. at around the same time. So it's not like anyone's lost anything over time. It should just be it should be easy to plug RPM right in there and appeal to all the same kind of people, you know? Mm-hmm. If you like that, you're going to like this. Thank you. You know, over the years, I've, I've worked with different engineers, different producers, I mean, literally, people have pulled me aside and said, you know, that second RPM record still yeah. kills me. I mean, it's like, how did you guys pull that off? I mean, yeah, it, it wasn't for lack of trying, John, because literally, I, I you know, I, I don't know yeah. if there's ever been anything I've, I've poured creatively so much into in such a condensed period of time, a year and a half. Everything we had creatively went yeah. into that, you know. But it's part of the deal, and it just wasn't meant mm-hmm. to be, but... Uh, and, and of course, then you know later, you know the second record, probably our our third manager at that point, and <clears throat> two or three attorneys, and you start double guessing yourself, and yeah, and, and Warner Brothers said, okay, chaps, let's get cracking on the next record, and we're going like, man, I, you know, we're still looking at wounds, wow. you know? yeah, yeah, and we we so had they actually, wanted a third album from you, yes. And so we, we had cut five sides at the time. And a friend of mine, Joseph Noyan, has a studio in town called The Castle. And, and I mean, it's a castle. I mean, it's just, mm. they're, they're, they're a, a family from Belgium who, you know, came here to the United States years ago to do it right. And they built this 
you know, put this beautiful studio in and this this castle outside of Franklin, Tennessee, here in the hills. And so we, we it's a great creative place, space. And so we, we cut five sides, including a cover of Eleanor Rigby. I think it'll blow your mind. I would um, love it. And it still, I think it still stands today. Wow. And, uh, it's nuts. It just happened when I, but anyway. Now are so these we, demos? Or they're not, are they, they're not professionally produced, right? These are demos. Yeah, they're, they, they're, they're, they're professionally produced. I mean, you know. Really? We, so you're halfway through your third album? Yes. Oh, man. Who worked on yeah. the third album then? Well, it was we we produced it, and there was a, a young. Oh, it was you guys doing it? Okay. Yeah, there was a young engineer at the castle. His name was uh, Giles Reeves, and Giles was early twenties. Reminded me very much of Brandon O'Brien, who I worked with on uh, with Johnny Van Zant back in the in the eighties. I produced a record called Brickyard Road for Johnny. That was a that was the number one song, mm-hmm. and and I wanted to use this this new guy uh, that we worked with in Atlanta named Brandon O'Brien, and and uh, the record label well, Atlanta. Right? Who's he? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Brandon went on to produce Pearl Jam, uh, Spring Spring, uh, yep. you know, whatever. Uh, yeah, he's but anyway, guy. so Giles was that, that kind of guy back then with us, uh, with RPM. And when we presented the songs, the five songs to Warners, they went crazy. They said, we love this. And you know what? You guys you guys don't need a producer. You don't need an associate or anything. Just, just do it. This is amazing. And we said, okay, look, at, with what we've been through, yeah, we can't we can't go through this again. It's just too hard. No. So we want yeah. before we go a step further, <clears throat> we want promotional guarantees from Warner Brothers. You know, right. what are you willing to guarantee us if we go ahead and, and deliver a, a, another record to you guys? And they said, well, we're not we're not in the position of, of guaranteeing things like oh, that no. to artists. Oh, and we yeah. said, well, we're not in the position yeah. of going through of, this. Of doing this. Yeah. We're not masochists. You know, we yeah. just. We, we can't creatively go through this again. I mean, they go through this all the time. They go to the next band or the next artist, but sure, for for us, it was it. You know, that's yeah. All. And yeah. so they wouldn't give us a guarantee. So we said, look, give us fifty thousand dollars. You know, with yeah. that fifty grand, we paid off our attorney, had some yeah. equipment lease that we needed to pay off, and then we put a few grand each in our pockets and called it wow. a day. And, and where uh, are those five songs now? Oh, I have them. <laughs> you have them.
were just sitting there. Yes. Oh, I'm really, really proud. If you if you love photogenic, you'll love these. A lot of wonderful things happen. A lot of lessons yeah. lessons learned. You know, uh, and everybody ended up kind of not long after that, kind of going their their separate ways. You know. Right. Right. That's the RPM story. But now there's that's really just one. That's the first chapter of many for you. I've read about the songs that you've written for other people, but I have one question that I wanted to ask before we get to that. Is is RPM really the only recorded example of your music? You've have you you didn't ever put out a solo album or did you join another band that put out other albums? Are you more a behind the scenes songwriter production guy and have been ever since? Yeah, I'm I'm more of a behind the scenes guy. Although while I was signed to ATV, they issued a solo record on with with different songs that I'd I'd written. In. And at the time, the BBC, for instance, would play you know songs of uh, artists, and uh, ATV was based in one. They actually manufactured a, 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 a kind of put together a, a solo record. You actually listing a a photo of our promotion shop for, huh. on the album just to kind of promote me to, to uh, uh, British radio. So there was some airplay and stuff there, but it wasn't really meant for commercial sale per se. There's a solo album of yours that comes out in England that you don't even really realize you've made? No, or I mean, they, did you make... they just asked me, uh, what, what you know, give us a collection of your songs, and lo and behold, the next thing you know, they send me a, an album. A physical album saying here, oh, wow. here's your here's your record album that we've released uh, to uh, British radio. <laughs> oh my gosh! Oh wow! You know, there's some really interesting songs there. Uh, you know, just uh, you know, I mean, we we were driven by creativity. I mean, it was sure. the, the great Clear. the greatest thing I have to say is that um, now you know, as, as disappointing as it was that Warner Brothers didn't get behind our project more when, upon, when it's, with its release. I, I later I totally understood from a business sense. I mean, mm. you know, it, it made total sense to them, uh, obviously, and and they were very very gracious and kind to us. Every, almost everything we wanted to do, they they went along with. You yeah, know? yeah. They were truly a a, a really nurturing uh, yeah. record label. That sounds like you know? it. Yeah. They didn't get behind the final product, but they didn't stop you from making it. No, and I, I ran into Mo Austin. Do what you want to do. Yeah, yeah. I, I ran into Mo Austin one time at, at at lunch in Los Angeles with our A and R guy, and Mo came up to me and said, "Hey, you know, look at you know we, you know, uh, we look forward to you guys being here for a long time, and maybe we'll hook it on the first record. Maybe we'll take a couple, three, but we're going to get there. And, and of course, at the time you're going like, oh no, we'll hook it on the first one. <laughs> yeah, of course. Oh no, we're going to knock this out. Yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Oh wow. Mm-hmm. So okay. So then, I mean, from my perspective, the biggest songwriting credit you have is Celine Dion's Where Does My Heart Beat Now? That's what right. it is, right? Yes. Uh-huh. So much to believe in We were lost in time Everything I needed fell into your eyes Thought of keeping your heart next to mine
that's got to be, first of all, you got to tell me how that happened. And then secondly, again, and you can be as vague or specific as you want, going back to money, uh-huh. it's got to be a little bit like hitting the lottery. I mean, you've, you've written a song to an artist. Granted, it's her first big hit, but she goes on to be gigantic, selling millions of greatest hits albums, performing this song all over the place. It's still out there. You've, right. you, was that, am I wrong in assuming that there is a steady stream of, of healthy income deriving from just that one song? Right. There is. Some years are better than other years, but it's done really well. And I was very, very fortunate, blessed. She's such an amazing singer, such an amazing body of work. And she's kept the, the whole catalog alive all these years. You know, her husband, Renee, is mm-hmm. facing some pretty hefty uh, headwinds right now. His cancer's yeah. back and, and stuff. So yeah. they're they're uh, they're having, a, am sure, a really tough time. And the whole Celine thing is very interesting because, um, obviously, I, I didn't know who she was at the time. I was in producing a Peter Wolf record uh, for MCA. Yeah, I love it. Tears are falling And she feels so alone He stopped calling But she still waits by the phone Peter is another, you know, just eccentric as they come, but just a great guy, a true yeah. artist. I, I learned a lot from him. Just, just was he married to Faye Dunaway at the time? Faye Dunaway. Right? Immense integrity from an artistic standpoint, and also just, uh, you know, his word was as good as gold. If he said this is what's going to happen, that's what's going to happen. Although there were some tumultuous times during that project, but I spent six and a half months in the studio with him. My co-writer of Where Does My Heart Be Now is Taylor Rhodes. And Taylor and I, we were both signed to Dick James Music. Taylor and I uh, did a number of, he's an incredibly gifted guy. And another former drummer. I, I was originally a drummer. And Taylor was a drummer. And so we immediately hit it off. We started writing songs. And he and I kind of started creating this duo sort of thing. Some people said it was like, uh, again, kind of like uh, Hall & Oates on steroids. It was uh, yeah. very... Had, kind of some R&B sort of, but it was really kind of edgy with some British sort of stuff sprinkled in there. We ended up writing, co-writing the song, Where Does My Heart Be Now? At the time, we were trying to get a song to Jennifer Rush, who was a big, big European artist, and, and she had the first hit with Power of Love. It seems I'm far away But never
Celine later had a hit with, you know, 10, yeah. 12 years later. But by the time we got it to Jennifer Rush, her project had, had closed. Hmm. And so my publisher at the time, Joe Boylan, who's now, is no longer with us, but uh, hmm. just a, a great guy and a, and a dear, dear friend. Anyway, so they send it to Canada and then on to England, another English connection, for this new artist named Celine Dion, who is getting ready to do her first English-speaking record. So I'm in the studio with Peter. I get a FedEx package, and it's a cassette of Where Does My Heart Be Now by this young singer, Celine Dion. And so we're like, going like, and, and you know, John, you know, nine, not to say nine times out of ten, but I'd say at least 75% of the time when somebody else covers your song, mm-hmm. it can be a letdown, you know? Yeah, I, I mean, could imagine. Uh, sure. It's either they've... They've changed it just for the sake of changing it, or the vocal didn't happen, or for whatever yeah. reason. And so, you know, we, you know, we didn't have any lofty expectations. They said this is going to be the first U.S. single, and, and we're all going, "Yeah, sure, I've heard that story before right. too." You know? Right, right. So, and Peter's the there. We 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 put it in the studio monitors. We play it, and everybody's like just completely blown away. And Peter looks at me and goes, "Like, congratulations, man." Yeah, that's that's going to be like huge, you know. Yeah. So of course it was her first really. uh, Did it sound anything like you would have imagined? Oh yeah, you're more of a rocker, right? But you, you, this you intended this to be more of a ballad, and it's she's keeping with the spirit or what? What was what was wonderful to us is that they Chris Neal, who's now a friend, dear friend of mine, had produced it, followed our demo. Oh really? I mean, from from the 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 delays on the hi hat that. To, mm-hmm. to the people think that I'm singing backgrounds on Sling's oh, record, and it's Chris, and he copped everything that I did. And because it was Sling's first English speaking record, she phonetically copied mm-hmm. everything oh, true. that yeah. our singer did. Even the ad libs, yeah. almost every ad lib at the end. Oh, wow. And and so I'm like listening to it and, and getting to the end. I'm going, oh my gosh, she's doing most of the same ad libs yeah. even. Yeah, you know, and the girl that sang Whoa. the demo was was Lisa Bevel, who was uh, a really dear friend, and she was eight months pregnant when she sang, eight and a half months pregnant when she sang the demo. <laughs> wow! Oh my gosh! You know, that spent thirty four weeks on the charts because she was a new artist. Mm-hmm. It was probably the longest sustained single she's ever had in her career. Yeah, yeah. It it just kind of crept and up the there Titanic and it stayed song. up there, and it kind of crept her crept down. Yeah. yeah. So if you did, I mean, be as honest as you want. Let's say you did nothing else the rest of your career but lift off that Celine Dion song. Uh-huh. Could you even do that? Could you float or coast through life with just Celine money? Or would well, you probably, need to do more? You know, probably not now at this point. Although, okay. I mean, this this past year has been really good because, I'm, I'm, you know, it's like, Another thing I'd, I'd like to say to, to songwriters is, you know, if if you can write songs that have kind of international appeal, you're just expanding your your not only your demographic but your your income stream. And so, mm-hmm. you know, probably for the last several years, I've probably procured more money outside of the U.S. on that song mm-hmm. than domestically. Yeah, yeah, probably. And, and stuff. And so it just keeps, you know, and then wow. they'll keep repackaging it. That song has been released probably. By Celine, I've got I've got copies of uh, probably ten times in one form or another. Wow, wow, you know, wow. That's I mean, it's winning the lottery in a way. Yeah, it's 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 generated 
millions of dollars over the years. Today, I'm not sure what a song is generating today. Obviously, it, it, it's not generating the mechanicals that songs used to, you know, because of the whole digital thing and the piracy sure. and whatever, yeah. and Streaming Spotify and or whatever, that sort of thing. Yeah. But it was a real blessing. So i got two more things I want to ask you about. Sure. One is kind of along the same lines. You are the guy that's saying that sometimes you feel like a nut, sometimes you don't. I'll enjoy <laughs> commercial. Uh-huh. Where does that fit in? Okay, you know what? It's a small, stinking world, right? So yesterday, I, I had lunch with my good friend, Dan Williams. Well, Dan Williams lives in the Nashville area. He and his wife are dear friends of ours. We still work together in different ways. Going way back, when I had my first writing deal with Ronnie Milsa, mm-hmm. Dan had just come to town from Texas, and he was writing jingles for this, this jingle house in town called Kelso Hurston. And he and his partner, Mike Stewart, would come and hang out at Millsaps because they, they were actually also great songwriters. And so mm-hmm. it was just, man, I, you know, Nashville in the 80s and 90s was just so amazing. You could walk into town in the 80s and get appointments with publishers oh, on amazing. the street. Right? Wow. But yeah. uh, we would sit there, and so Dan would hang out. And then he started hearing some of the things that I was doing with RPM. And then his career started going crazy with jingles. He wrote uh, uh, Red Lobster from the Seafood Lover and You, right? <laughs> and scores of other things, did old Taco Bell, Run for the Border, all these different uh-huh. things. So oh I, I would go in there. He owned the studio where we cut our first record called Creative Workshop. And so he started his own business, Dan Williams Music. And then Dan or one of his talent people would call me up and say, hey, Robert, can you come by sometime today? we got a thing or two for you to sing. I would have no idea what I'm going to sing. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. and I would show up, and, you know, when you do a jingle, it's like you've got to hit it and get it within five minutes of your toast, right? Because wow. time is money and, yeah, yeah. and stuff. And it was one of the greatest things I'd ever done. And he was merciful with me at the beginning because I really hadn't sung many jingles before, but he knew how to, you know, get it out of me and stuff. And then I later, you know, Mm-hmm. I felt got better with as we went, but so that was one of the things I sang one day. Wow! Sometimes you feel like a nut, sometimes you don't. Almond Joy's got nuts, mounds don't. I mean, you know. So that ran on radio for like years. Again, I'm very fortunate in the fact that you know I've been able to diversify my career, and I think it's even more important today than even when it was back years ago. Hmm. Wow. Uh huh. I interviewed somebody else recently who also had a very successful jingle singing career for many, many years. It paid him way more than his musical career did. I would imagine that just that one jingle lasting as long as it is. It's, I mean, you say that. We all, from a certain generation, still remember that song. Was that another sort of nice income stream for a while, sort of a gift that kept on giving? It was for a number of years, but mind you, what what I did was national radio. It didn't TV... Mm. The money okay. is, is is much more huge. Oh, I, okay, different. Uh, okay. I, I, I've got friends of mine, Cindy Fee. She sang, you know, Hoover vacuum cleaners? Mm-hmm. She sang the words, I think it was like, nobody does it like you. Hoover, right? Oh, I remember that, yeah. It took her five minutes, right? This is when she lived in Chicago. Five minutes. Uh-huh. She made it like... Uh, I, one time she told me, like, quarter of a million a year. Oh, wow. For years on that song. They they wow. bought the house next door to the governor's mansion in Nashville. <laughs> wow. 
You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, I didn't make that kind of stupid money on that song. Okay. Uh, on, that, okay. on that jingle, it, it was it was great because it was one of the greatest things it did is that it really helped pay for my health insurance for years because it, it, oh, it qualified me for my sure. after uh, benefits. You know. Okay. Or yeah. Our after benefits, I should say, the three dollars. Wow. You know? wow. Uh-huh. Well, good for you. Okay. I don't want to keep you too much longer, but I do have one more question. So That's okay. I'm you. Good. Okay. Good. I'm glad. This is a lot of fun, by the way. You're a good. Oh, I look at your. I love your energy. I heard some of your other earlier podcasts, and I, I told my wife, Mary, I said, I can't wait to speak to him because, A, you've got such an amazing radio voice, and I love your spirit. I was telling the young artist I, I work with today that, again, John, I, I love your entrepreneurial spirit because, you know, as much as it's a challenge these days, there's also uh, new avenues opening up. I've done some really heavy stuff lately, you know? Oh, really? Uh, it's almost borderline Led Zeppelin, so bring it, you oh. know? If it's good, yeah. I want to do it, and I want to be a part yeah. of it, you know? I'm just fortunate I grew up a time I did where we had all those influences, you know? Yeah, yeah, so interesting. Well, mm-hmm. look, I, as someone who is very curious and has been fascinated about who you are and what you've done outside of the music that I've already known and love. I'm really just glad that you have a great life, that you can pay your bills and you've reached some success and you got your head screwed on straight so you can, you don't have to deal with the, with the junk that comes with it. I mean, maybe to some degree we all do, but you're kind of charting your own course here and having success at it. That's what we want from the people who's, creativity we respect right we just want them to be able to feel empowered to continue to do it and right. they want we want them to feel validated you did something that mattered and i hope you know it and unfortunately in this day and age or fortunately the way you know it is you vote with your wallet right and right, so you right. are getting you're making a living being the artist that i as a fan want you to be and so i'm really glad that you've got that that that's been your life it's been really interesting kind of getting to know you and researching you a little bit because this guy's doing all right. That's what I wanted from the guy who put out Phonogenic that I like so much. Well, that, that's really kind. That's really kind to you. Believe me, I never take it for granted. I get up there every day, and I just thank God I'm able to do what I love. Can you believe some of that? I mean, first of all, the uh, Trevor Horn and that stable of artists and creatives that he was involved with, those are among my very favorite artists ever musically. And yet it still didn't quite get off the ground. It so should have. And then the jingles that he either wrote or sang. These are things we've grown up with. You know what I mean? And then to luck into, not luck in the sense that he didn't deserve it, but to luck into writing one of Celine Dion's biggest hits, produce Peter Wolf. I love Peter Wolf. I mean, the guy has, he's just been all over the place having his hands in things that I personally really, really love. So, so cool. All right. The next few weeks, we are devoted to iconic movie soundtrack people. Now, these are artists who've done more than just be in movies or have songs and soundtracks. But at this point, that might be what some of their biggest legacies are. And next week, we talk to Joe Esposito. If you don't know who that is, get out your copy of The Karate Kid because he's the guy that sings You're the Best Around. Still, that song endures now more than ever. It's a classic. And so I thought it'd be really interesting to get to know the guy behind that, and sure enough, it was. He's had a much broader, much bigger career than just that song, but that song is the one that won't die. 
I hope you'll join us for that. Huge thanks to Yan, as always, Yan the Man Makevich for producing this podcast. We love him. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Talk to you later. Oh,